Amen. Amen. All right. You may be seated. Um, and let us first, before diving into the text, let us go to the Lord and prayer because we have a wonderful friend in Jesus. Father, we come before you both humbly and boldly, humbly because it is not by our doing, it is not by our works, it is not by our goodness, but we come boldly because we know that the work is finished because of Jesus. We know that we have the Holy Spirit that can come and bring us before you and you will hear us. What a friend we have in Jesus. And Lord, as we come to this text, this very sad text, that line in what a friend we have in Jesus that says that, that you know our sorrows, that you know our pain and our suffering. Lord, let, uh, let that be upon our minds when we read this text. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you fill me with both your power but also your gentleness to lead this church into your word more so that I can lead them to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, my name is Nicholas Potts. I actually attend Shoreline Church, so I'm sure you've heard of uh, our church from Dan I've known Dan for a few years now, and uh, what a great man and great pastor you guys have. Very loving, very tender, uh, but also very uh, forthright uh, when I need to be called out in my sin. So, amen. <laughs> so, uh, I want to take a look at this text in Psalm 88. It's going to be broken down into three sections. First, it's going to be verses 1 through 6, which is a cry for help. Verses 7 through 13, which is a plea for mercy. And finally, in verses 14 through 18, the dawn of darkness. I don't know about you, uh, but I have, a, uh, I have a Spotify playlist for my music. I have a couple different things in there. I, I do have a country playlist, which I haven't listened to in years. Um, I have just kind of my regular music. I have uh, some worship music. But I also have a sad songs playlist. Yeah, I know, it's weird. Um, one, a couple of those songs on there is uh, Don't Take the Girl by Tim McGraw. If you've ever listened to it, it's, it's really sad, actually. Um, there's a, another song on there, Last Kiss by J. Frankie Wilson and the Cavaliers, if you're familiar with that song. So yeah, it's a, kind of a depressing playlist. However, there's a reason why I have it. The reason why I have it is every now and then when I am feeling a little bit stoic, a little bit robotic and emotionless, a little cold and dispassionate, sometimes I listen to it and I'll listen to several songs and if it doesn't kind of break through, I'll put it on repeat and listen to it again. But once it kind of breaks through and once I kind of feel something, I know I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to remember the emotions that we as humans tend to feel. The book of Psalms 
is filled with a lot of joyful passages. Better is one place in your house than thousands elsewhere. Kiss the sun. There are so many passages throughout the Psalms that are beautiful and wonderful. To raise up your hands, strike up the band, and praise the Lord. And yet there are other passages in the Psalms that are sometimes a little bit dark, a little bit sad and depressing. We can see that in Psalm 13, which starts off by saying, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you downcast within me? Psalm 42, Psalm 73, that's a, that's a good one. Psalm 73 says, uh, why does the uh, wicked prosper? We can just look around in our news today sometimes, and we're like, wow, yeah, that's, that's a psalm for today. But I wanted to bring us to Psalm 88, because it brings up not only the question of why does evil happen in this world, and why does God allow for evil? But it specifies our question. It makes it a little bit more specific to us, that it's not just why does God allow evil in this world, but more so why does God allow suffering in this world? The psalmist is not asking this question as some sort of intellectual exercise. You have a couple armchair philosophers arguing, yeah, why, well, why does evil exist? What, what is evil? You hear that. You see that on social media. You see that in philosophical journals. Sure, those are fun questions to deal with. But those of us who are dealing with evil, we're not really asking those questions. We're not necessarily asking, why does God uh, allow for evil in a generic sense? No, we're asking, why has God allowed evil to bring me suffering? That's the question we ask, not only individually, but even as a human race. This psalm is actually so sad that I, I like the way uh, James Montgomery Boyce put it. He said, it is good that we have a psalm like this, but it is good that we only have one. It reminds us of, uh, that a life is filled with trouble, even to the point of despair, even for mature believers. Now, we know that everything does turn out right in the end of all things, right? When Christ returns, but that's not what these guys are getting at. Sometimes our own lives end sometimes sad and tragic. We try to comfort ourselves by saying stuff like, you know, well, death is a natural part of life. I'm going to tell you outright, death is not a natural part of life. Death is a curse. Genesis 3. More than that, death is an enemy that will be defeated one day. Amen? But whenever we experience death and death of a loved one, while it is jarring... It should be expected because God's word tells us that this is going to happen. For this psalmist, it brings him much despair to a point that he almost gives up on God, but not completely. 
He is close. He doesn't come back with hope like Psalm 13, which does start off by saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? But then he kind of comes around and says, but yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Psalm 88 didn't finish with that, did it? He finishes it with darkness, but yet he still prays to God anyway. Let's look to the text. <clears throat> Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So first of all, first thing that we notice, O Lord, God of my salvation, while this psalmist doesn't finish off with God of my salvation, he starts off with it, and then it kind of seems to go downhill from there. But I want to point out something. Is this man saved? Look at the text again. O Lord, God of my salvation. Not you are the God who saves as if it's some generic idea way out here. No, God of my salvation. It's personalized. He's brought it to himself. So we ask the question, can mature believers be depressed? Well, if we believe the Bible, the answer is astoundingly yes. Mature believers can be depressed. 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul actually says that we have despaired of life itself. That's a, that's a pretty dark statement. Let, let's modern jargon. I don't want to live anymore. We have despaired of life itself. I don't want to live anymore. I am so deeply depressed that I just, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. How many of us, don't raise your hands, how many of us have thought that? We've had days that can be so difficult, whether if it's the death of a friend, death of a loved one, a loved one has left us or abandoned us, whatever it may be. Notice, again, that this is not some one-off cry. Look at it again. It says, I cry out day and night before you. Too often, we kind of just pray for about 30 seconds, and then our friends around us are like, come on, bro. Like, let's, let's finish this up. 30 seconds, man, that's really long. Or we're in our own quiet time, and we pray for a solid minute. And then we, we just kind of awkwardly end it with, all right, God, that's about it. That's all I have. Or if we're really spiritual, we say, the Spirit knows what I'm praying for. And then we just kind of finish it off, right? Yet, this psalmist, he cries out day and night. He is unrelenting in his prayers. He is going over and over and over, not stopping, demanding an answer. God, come to me. You are the God of my salvation. Bring me salvation. Now, maybe it's a good position to be in when God brings us in these situations, isn't it? Because too often, while our prayers only last for about 30 seconds or so, 
And then we, we really only pray for it once, and we, we, you know, may tell our friends or family, you know, I've been praying for it so much, but it's really you've been thinking about it so much. You're not actually praying for it. How often is that true? Maybe it's good that God brings us to these situations so that we start running to him in prayer. I like the way Puritan Samuel Rutherford put it. He said, it is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindness out of all the toughest strokes of God. That is, all the despair that we experience in life, we should still seek and look for the loving kindness of God, not only because of these, but in and through these trials. He continues to say, why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that makes deep cuts into my soul? I know he's no idle husbandman because he purposes a crop. That is, when you're farming, you don't just wipe away a little bit of dirt, drop some seed on it, and throw a little bit of dirt back on it. No, the birds will get it. No, you have to cut deep into the soil and plant that seed. And that's what God does with us. He may cut deep, but he plants the seed in there. Let's look to the remaining verse of this section. Verses two through six. The psalmist is kind of saying that he is either, uh, he's either ailed so much that he's kind of on the point of death that his, his ailments are like bringing him to the end of his physical life, or he's saying that his loneliness is so strong that it's better if he dies because it's as if he's dead anyway. I tend to take that latter interpretation, and I'll show you why here in a second. Uh, let's look to uh, the text itself. He says, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. Notice he's, he's not necessarily saying his body is full of troubles. His soul, it's deep anguish within him. And my life draws near to Sheol, the pit, the grave, death. I am counted among those who are down in the pit. So he's saying, it's as if I'm dead. I am a man who has no strength, like one who's set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Those whom you remember no more. For, you have, uh, for they have cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions, in the dark and deep. Again, this is a very sad, he's given you an insight to his own emotional turmoil, isn't he? Think, I, I want you to really think about this for a second. If this was your prayer to God, God, I'm, I'm as good as dead. Just, just count me among them because I'm there anyway. God, I, I have no strength left. I'm done. I'm exhausted. Count me out. You don't even remember me anymore. It's as if I'm cut off from your hand. Again, a very, a very sad statement. Yet, the text doesn't stop here, does it? 
I want you to look at verses 7 through 9 for me real quick. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, and you have made me a horror to them. I am shut off, or I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. There's a little bit of hope, isn't it? Where is he running to in his deepest sorrow and deepest despair? What's it say right at the end of verse 9? Every day I call on you. I spread out my hands to you. He's not running away from God in his trial, in his trouble, in his despair. Where is he running to? That should be something that we all practice ourselves. Because I'll tell you what, I know for myself, but I know it's not human nature to run toward God when we either sin or when we're struggling. We're all like Adam and Eve, right? We run away and we hide. But I also want you to notice our pronouns here. Because this might, this might mess with some of our personal theologies a little bit here. Notice your pronouns here. Verse, we'll back up a little bit to verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions in dark deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, and you have made me a horror to them. Who's the one causing these things? It's God. Now, one could say, well, the psalmist believes it's God. It's not actually God. He believes it's God. Yet, I really don't find that to be an accurate interpretation. First of all, while it is uh, He-Man who wrote this, who ultimately wrote Scripture? The Holy Spirit. That's right. So who guided He-Man to write these words? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that, that, that's a tough thing to get around. Again, this is why I was saying that earlier that sometimes God does bring us to that point of breaking, to that point of despair. Not because God's some sort of child with a magnifying glass burning ants, No, it's so that we stop relying on ourselves, that we stop relying on our strength. Or let's make it a little bit more personal, we stop relying on the faith of our parents or the the friends that we have in church. No, this needs to be the God of my salvation, not the God of my parents' salvation, not the God of my friends' salvation. It needs to be the God of my salvation. Further, we can also ask, well, why is this man in despair? Why is this man in depression? Well, some, some Christians want to just jump real quickly and say, well, probably because he's in sin. Maybe. 
Does sin lead to depression? Yes, it does. But does it always? Well, Scripture argues against that, so I guess not. Because who is the one who's brought this man here? Was it his sin or was it God? I ask again, what does the text say? It says, you have brought me here. So, the question that lies before us is, why would God do this? There's many answers for that, according to Scripture. But we will get there. Regardless of how you got there, when you are there, we must, uh, we must not come to this uh, place and saying, I do not deserve this. Because what do we deserve? According to scripture, what do we deserve? The de- death, right? Yeah, we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And what is the wages of sin? Death, that's right. So, a little bit of depression, you know, is far better than death, in my opinion. So, so we cannot come to this point by saying that I do not deserve this because we deserve far better. So, yes, you do not deserve that. You deserve worse. So, in a sense, we can oddly thank God that we only have depression. And yet, again, this is something that a lot of philosophers and theologians want to debate and say, you know, well, you know, God would allow it for this reason or that reason. I want to stop any thought. The text does not explicitly get us there. Don't, Don't try to read stuff into the text because you want a certain answer. We can't do that. We are adding to God's word, and God's word actually condemns those who add to his word. He says very specifically that those who add to this book will receive the condemnation and the curses and plagues according to this book. So please do not add to God's word by trying to get an answer that you would like. But we get to a a strange section of this passage. It's, It's verses 10 through 13. Let's take a look at it. He starts asking a bunch of questions. He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, the obvious answer to these is no. You're like, wait a second. Do you work wonders for the dead? Well, yeah, he, you know. Rose Lazarus up from the dead, did he not? Well, when Lazarus was risen from the dead, was he dead? No, he's alive now. So the miracles are for the living. Again, raising Lazarus up wasn't for Lazarus. It was for those around him. It was for the living. We can go through the rest of them, do the departed rise up to praise you? No, dead people don't praise. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? 
are your wonders known in the darkness? Well, the whole point of scripture when it talks about darkness, it's really nothing is known. Knowledge is abandoned, reason, wisdom is abandoned. So no. Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. Well, we can't speak of God's righteousness if we forget about it, right? However, there are two truths that we must understand while coming to this text. First, that God is transcendent. We know what that means, right? That he is above all things, that he sits over all creation, guarding it, guiding it. He is sovereign over it all. That's another word for transcendent. But sometimes when we go to God in prayer, we think sometimes that he is too transcendent, don't we? That he's sometimes too far away, that he can't quite hear me. Or why would he want to listen to me? Because he's that far above all things. We sometimes forget that he is what's called imminent. That means he is among us. That he is simultaneously both transcendent and imminent. These may sound a little contradictory. Yet, Scripture says that they are both true, so they can't be contradictory. We remember his imminence, not because... God is in the falling leaves or in the still small voice. Yeah, I know that's found in scripture, but that's not really for us. God's not in the rainbow. No, the perfect manifestation of God being with us is Jesus Christ. He is called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And more than that, yes, Christ ascended into heaven. He is seated on, seated on high, praying to the Father as our high priest today. So yes, he is not physically here with us, but how is he still here with us? He has sent his spirit. What a glorious thing, because what did Jesus himself say? He said, it is better for me to go so that I may send the spirit and that he be with you. And you're thinking, wow, how is it? How is that better? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus was standing right here? What what a great thing if I was the one sitting down here and Jesus was the one up at this pulpit preaching. What an incredible idea. And yet Jesus himself said, it's better for me to go so that I may send the Spirit. If we do not believe this, we do not believe Jesus Let us repent of that if we do not believe that. Finally, we get to our last section. Verses 14 through 18. The dawn of darkness. It's kind of an emo thing to say, a little dark, isn't it? But yet you'll see where I'm getting at. The man making this prayer does not Again, in like form, go the route of Psalm 13 or 42. He doesn't start off with kind of depressed petitions. He kind of rounds it off by remembering the promises of God. No, he finishes with a dark and lonely statement. Look at the end of uh, verse 18. It says, uh, You have caused my friend, uh, my beloved, and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. 
kind of like the way the NIV renders this. I think it's a little bit better, uh, a little bit more easy to understand. It says, but darkness has become my closest friend. It's uh, very poetic, isn't it? It's very lonely, very sad statement. And yet, it is part of Scripture. And what did Paul say to Timothy? He said, all Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for rebuke, teaching, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So Psalm 88 is part of that, isn't it? You might be thinking, yeah, I believe that, but I don't see how it is. First off, it should help us see the weight of a brother's burden. Sometimes, you know, the Lord may have blessed us and we don't really ever experience uh, deep depression or despair. God bless you for that. Seriously, like that is, that is a wonderful blessing that the Lord has given you if you have not experienced something like that. But if you have you know that it's a very lonely place. So while others may not personally experience it, it's nice to know that people can see, people can hear you, people can know where you're at, maybe not on an experiential level, but that they're going to be walking with you through it. So we can understand this man's burden, his emotional trauma, And if we don't understand that, maybe we all need a sad songs playlist, don't we? Finally, of the interpretation here, and then we'll move to an application. While we've gone through the text itself, we must remember the words of Jesus in Luke 24. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So according to Jesus and the interpretive method that both Jesus and the apostles used, what is he saying? That even Psalm 88 must be fulfilled in Christ. So the question is, is how does it do it? While this seems hopeless. The darkness gets the last word, literally. My companions have become darkness. And as it stands, it seems that we have a silent God who may or may not actually be there. And if he is there, he's just listening and watching our sufferings and not doing anything about it. If we stop and only read Psalm 88 then we forget the promises of God, just like the psalmist. Now, while the psalmist doesn't necessarily forget the promises of God, he, just, he remembers that they're just way out here. He forgets that they're for him. I want to turn our eyes to Hebrews chapter 11, because I think this really helps us understand what uh, not just this psalmist, but any 
uh, book of the Old Testament, that they have some of the promises of God and they've been revealed. But in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13, the author of Hebrews, he's just gone through a list of people, okay? He's just gone through a list of people throughout the Old Testament showing that the uh, Jewish people of his day, that salvation has always been by faith alone. Remember sola fide? It's always been by faith alone. And he's gone through this whole list, and he gets to verse 13, and he writes, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what a marvelous gift this is, because notice what he's saying is all the people of the Old Testament, they, they've been given these promises, but they've, they haven't received it. They've greeted it, but only as if far off. That, that Greek word, far off, it means just past your fingertips. So you're reaching out, and it's just right there. They haven't, they haven't been able to touch it or grab hold of it. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We see the promises of God. We see it displayed in other people's lives. But it just isn't there for us, it feels like. There's many things throughout the Old Testament. Look at Ecclesiastes 3, 4, which tells us that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. While this verse may be enlightening, helping us see the range of emotions that humans may feel, that it's not always just about happy feelings. But it's also encouraging. Because while it says that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, what it's saying is that our pain will not last forever. Our mourning will not last forever. Some of us have experienced some deep, deep pains. Loss of a friend, loss of a family member. Kind of your typical run-of-the-mill sufferings. But some of us have experienced deeper pains. Some that your brothers and sisters don't even know. Such as, you know, Some people have experienced the death of a parent, but how many of us have experienced the death of a child? What a deep, deep pain that is. Some of us have experienced the loss of a spouse, but what about the loss of a spouse, not because they died, but because they abandoned the faith and don't want anything to do with you? Or 
flip it around and say, you weren't saved when you got married, but you got saved and your spouse did it. What a deep tragedy that is. I have a close friend that that's, that's his reality. His wife abandoned him because he got saved. It's a very, very hard thing. But again, some of us, again, dealing with the death of a child is, is a deep sorrow, but what about, what about the, um, the sorrow that one gets because they never got the child that they prayed for? These are deep hurts that many of us have gone through that sometimes we have not shared. And yet, Scripture says that Christ is with us through it all. I want us to turn our eyes to excuse me, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, because what comes right after Hebrews 11, those who greeted things from afar, but yet did not receive it. Hebrews 12, 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is this long line of believers throughout the Old Testament, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this is not cosmic child abuse, as atheists want to put it. No, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What an awesome power we have. What an awesome God we have. Because this is not a pain that he uh, just struggled with and said, God, don't, don't take, or take this from me. When he's praying in the garden, he's not just saying, God, I don't want to do it. No, he knows the weight of the Father's face turning from him. Oh, how deep the Father's love is for us. Finally, a couple points of application. What does this text require of us? Well, first of all, it requires both a model of prayer and care. There's no getting around the deep suffering and depression that Scripture points out. Various authors, Psalms, Jeremiah, the prophet Job, Jesus in the garden, the apostle Paul, who said he despaired so much that he didn't even want to live anymore. But the balm for our soul is not more pop psychology. It's not merely more therapy, especially if it's in the guise of Christianity. It pretends to be a solution because when you look at it, a lot of these solutions, they're just another to-do list. And how can you give a burdensome to-do list to those who are suffering already that they don't even have the energy to live anymore? How can you give them a task list that is already so burdensome? No, the solution to our despair is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That those who suffered there is one who suffered even more. That in your despair, there is one who hung on the tree to burden, to take on your burdens and to take on your despair. But he was not overcome by it. 
The burdens and despair did not keep him in the grave. They did not hold him down like they did this psalmist. No, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered burdens. He conquered despair. But more than that, he conquered our sin. He conquered the thing that causes us separation from God, who is the presence of all joy. So this is a model of prayer and care because it says, even in your burdens, even through your burdens, run to the Lord in prayer. It's for the church because it says that we have a need for sound doctrine. Spurgeon says very clearly, he says, if I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, I have found I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Yet he continues, he says, still as imperfect as it may be, it is still the dearest place on earth. You see, Spurgeon was a man who was known to be very depressed, but he had a good theology of the church. There are many people throughout church history who have had deep depressions, but when they run to the scripture and understand proper doctrine that God is a God who is there, God who is a uh, God who is all-knowing, so he knows your struggle he is a God who is all-powerful, so he is able to conquer your struggle. But he is also a God who is everywhere present, so he is going to be with you through your struggle. That Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, that he is a man, so he knows the burdens that is upon you, but he is God, so he himself is able to conquer it. And he did. Amen? The doctrine of the church, we've already shown that we are brothers and sisters to love and bear the burden with one another. And a doctrine of the end, which says that Christ will come back and destroy all things that stand against him. Jesus is our God with us. And we take comfort in this sound doctrine and while the balm to our soul is prayer, we pray to the God that we know through sound doctrine. And finally, for the hurting, bring nothing to the cross but yourself. If you're a Christian experiencing suffering, the darkness may feel like it gets the last word sometimes, doesn't it? But it doesn't. Like this Psalmist, we have nothing. Sometimes we have no friends, no strength, no wealth, no hope, no goal, no aspiration, nothing positive to offer. Go to the Lord and bring nothing. It's just like the old hymn that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And remember John 14 through 16, which Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to go away for a little while. But remember, he said, for a little while, 
not forever. Let us cling to that hope. In conclusion, this psalmist, again, it's not like the other psalms. We see that. While he doesn't come around to positives or anything like that, where does he run to? Why is he even praying this prayer to begin with? Why is this psalm sung? Because he's still running to God in prayer. Even in his deep sorrows, even in his deep darkness, he is still running to the Lord in prayer. And these are not just the dark ponderings of a depressed man. No, these are doctrinal truths for the deeply depressed. This should bring to recollections the 139th Psalm, shouldn't it? It says, where shall I run from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Or if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. But the psalmist continues in saying, he says, Surely the darkness shall cover me. And that's where Psalm 88 is, isn't it? The darkness has covered him. Yet Psalm 139 says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for the darkness is light to you. God never promised that this fallen and cursed world would be without darkness. But he has promised that he will be with you through the darkness. And we have a God who can see in the dark, don't we? I pointed out earlier that Paul was a man who said that he, de- he despaired of life itself, but the words right after that, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In our present sufferings, do not forget that Christ is coming again. He will end all of our sufferings, and on that day we will hear with a loud voice, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne has said, behold, I am making all things new. What a glorious promise we have. That all of these things are going to be called former things. No no longer present things. They're former. They're in the past. They're gone. They're done. That there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. And it continues and says, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and nights will be no more. But today, 
today. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. From my Savior, he will stay. I labor on in my weakness and rejoicing. In my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. And if we know that song, what's the next line? When the night is dark, there is hope. Because, oh, the night has been won. And I shall overcome. But not I, but because of Christ in me. The book of Revelation finishes off discussing that there will be no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. So with all of creation, we wait for the coming of Christ to end all of our suffering. We end uh, not only our hope. Why? Because our hope will be fulfilled. Our faith will be ended because it will be sight. What a glorious day that will be if you hear our suffering. Look to the coming of Christ who will end all of your suffering. If you are somebody who is not here suffering, partner with your, your brothers and sisters who are and point them to that hope in a hopeless world. But know that this promise is only for those who are in Christ. If you are here without Christ, this hope is not for you. For I read Revelation 21, but what does Revelation also, 21 also say? It gives a list of those who are not in Christ, what their eternal state may be. But with the words of Charles Spurgeon, there are many sorts of broken hearts and a Christ who is good at healing them all. Let us come to the Lord in song that says that we are a friend in Jesus and I want you to listen and look at those words and not just sing it passively. Look at all those words, beautiful words that say that he is the one who is with us through our sorrows and our struggles. Amen.